Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yana Byers, and I'm here today with Rod Phillips, professor of history at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, to talk about his book, French Wine, out in 2016 with the University of California Press and just published in paperback in 2020. Hi, Rod. How are you? Yana, hi. Nice to be here. Good to see you. (laughs) Wonderful. I am so happy to have you here. So uh, how's Canada this morning? Uh, my bit of Canada in Ottawa is sunny. Uh, it's cool. I'm looking at 16 degrees. Um, it's, you know, we've had everything from 35 de- in the last few weeks, 35 degrees to 11 degrees during the day. So it's, uh, it's everything. It's what you expect in the spring. Sure. Absolutely. I imagine it is, uh, you know, beautiful and well, you know, Canada. So I always imagine there are like moose and whatnot running around, <laughs> probably not in your part. Not outside my window. No, No, probably not. Um, All right. So listeners, Rod started his career studying the history of the family, specifically divorce, um, publishing Family Breakdown in late 18th century France, Divorces in Rouen, 1792 to 1802, Clarendon Press in 1980, Divorce in New Zealand, uh, Oxford 81, Putting Asunder, A History of Divorce in Western Society, Cambridge 88, and Untying the Knot, Divorce in Western Society, Cambridge 91. So that's a lot of divorce. Also, a lot of books rather quickly, I want to say, as an historian. That's a very, it's an impressive list. And then we see this pivot to wine with The Short History of Wine, Penguin 2000, Ontario Wine Country, White Cup 2006, Alcohol History, UNC Press 2014, 9,000 Years of Wine, A World History, White Cup 2017, The Wines of Canada, Absolutely Unexpected, uh, Infinite Ideas 2017, and Wine, A Social and Cultural History of the Drink That Changed Our Lives, Infinite Ideas 2018. Rod, that's a lot of books. You have been a busy, busy scholar. Yes, and uh, but, yeah, but I mean, there was a long dry period, if I can call it a dry period, uh, between 2000, I think, and about 2014. All right. Nothing much there, and, and that was because I became a wine columnist for, for the local newspaper in Ottawa. <clears throat> and and all of a sudden, I was inundated with invitations to go here and there, like come to South Africa, come to Bulgaria, come to Burgundy, and so on, and so on, and so on, and taste the wines. And so for about 10 years, I traveled and, and tasted and wrote about, wrote about wine as a, as, a, as a wine columnist. I didn't do any history. And then around 2012, I suddenly realized I was missing history. And that's why I started back and I started with the history of alcohol since I've been teaching that course for quite a long time. And, uh, and then the other stuff followed. And there's right. you know, then a few more in the works. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I mean, it, I see a kind of natural progression from divorce to wine, <laughs> but it, that does explain kind of this break. That sounds like a good problem to have traveling around drinking wine and talking about it. Uh, it was a, a really fabulous time. And I, yeah. and I got to see parts of the world. I wouldn't normally have, have gotten to very easily. So, no, it was fab- a fabulous time. 
Yeah, that sounds great. But um, I understand missing history. She's the queen of the disciplines. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I I think it's interesting, right, that you have this book about New Zealand. So you go to France, which makes sense both on a wine level and then also that you are, um, you know, a French historian. But then you also have this book about New Zealand. So it seems like wine is the deal here, right? It's, It's about the wine, not the place so much. The book on New Zealand is is uh, is about divorce. Oh, didn't right. you? Oh, right. Okay. It's it's about divorce. Yeah. Oh my! No, I'm in New Zealand at my birth, and uh, I I went to Europe to do my PhD, and then I went back to New Zealand to teach for about two, seven years, and it's very you know, New Zealand is still a long way from anywhere, and especially France, and so since I was working on divorce in France, I figured, well, I write a history of divorce in New Zealand. So I kind of did that as a filler in a way. Right. Okay. That's, that's, that's where that comes from. All right. So actually, yeah. And I just read these titles aloud. So you'd think they would stick in my head for more than a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, also I do prep for these things, despite how you may not also <laughs> see, that, see that happening. But uh, no, it's the wines of Canada, right? So we see that you, um, you, end, you end up writing about Canada, which is unexpected on a number of levels. I mean, first of all, and I no prejudice intended, but like, I don't often think of Canada and wine going together, just climactically. Right. But right. also it's, um, you know, that has to, I'm guessing that is about you being living in Canada for so long. Yeah, living in Canada. And because, you know, for, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been writing about wine, writing about modern wine, not just the history of wine. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with uh, Canadian wine regions and wineries and wine people. And then um, Infinite Ideas publishes this series called the Classic Wine Library, which has been going for decades and decades and decades um, under, under various publishers. And they, they asked if I would write uh, their volume on wine. So they mean they have they've got dozens of dozens of uh, volumes on various regions, as well as on styles like port and sherry and so on. And I'm doing uh, I'm doing another one for them as soon as I can get back to France. Uh, I'm doing another one on the wines of southwest France uh, for them to to region I especially like. All right. Um, And so I want to stress that this book, despite you having worked as a a wine journalist, not despite, Mm -hmm. I see it coming together because I know you worked as a wine journalist and this is a very readable book. And it's clearly not just for specialists, right? This is not a book for historians alone. Um, what was the kind of your scope, the aim of the book? Who did you want to talk to? Well, I wanted to talk to um, I wanted to talk to specialists, but I also wanted it to be accessible to people who are interested in wine. I mean, there's a very large, you know, wine constituency out there, and I'm not just thinking of people who just go and buy wine and drink wine, but there are people who are interested in wine. And, uh, you know, they read, um, you know, fairly, uh, fairly serious wine magazines that are not just about, you know, 10, 10 cheap and cheerful wines from Chile, you know, something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they, they want to know more about production and producers and the history of things and that kind of thing. So it's, 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 quite, a, it's quite a decent audience. Uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to bring them in as well. And then I thought, you know, it also has, you know, possible uh a possible market with students like um students of food and drink uh, a lot of courses now colleges universities offering courses in the history of food and drink so it can it can play into that as well 
So, sure. I mean, publishers hate this, of course, when you say, oh, they say, Everyone. who's it? Everybody will want to <laughs> read this book. And I mean, they hear that from just about every every author pitching a book, right? Saying, oh, this is, everyone's going to buy this book. But uh, so I th- that, that's what I aimed for. And and I, I don't know, I, I I meet I meet academics and I meet uh, just wine people who who I'm not going to say they've read the book but they bought the book, and uh, so it, it sort of you know I think it sort of worked. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, it's also a very serious book of history, though. This is a good solid, yeah. and historian will not be disappointed with this purchase. It is a very serious book. Economic, yeah. social, and cultural history kind of blended together with this broad variety of sources. And I'm curious about what you particularly liked best about the historian's craft here? Like, what was your favorite source or what did you enjoy working on? Well, uh, in this book, and it's the same with, with the, the big book on divorce I did, um, I, I really combined a lot of secondary sources because it, it, it's a kind of synthetic, any, any survey is a synthetic work. I mean, you don't do primary, primary work on every period in every place. So it's very uh, synthetic. And uh, so a lot of secondary uh, books, articles, and things like that. Then a lot of primary printed material, you know, going back to the 1500s, um, you know, up to, well, up to the 1900s, I suppose. And then um, uh, some primary material. I mean, I've been working in, uh, in French archives for years and years, and especially on, on wine, because I've got, a, I've got some more projects coming up. Uh, so I blend as much of that in as I can. So, you know, it's really a, it's really a, a, blend, of, uh, a blend of sources and um, uh, from, you know, various, various, parts of, uh, various parts of France. As for, you know, a particularly, I mean, some of the, I, I found some of the early works on agriculture to be really, really interesting. Um, you know, published around 1600. I mean, they're, you know, huge, uh, huge tomes, really, encyclopedic. Um, and it's very, it's very difficult not to keep on reading. I mean, you, you go for the viticulture bit, and then you see, oh, now, now there's something on rye. What do they got to say about rye? And, uh, you know, so it's, it's easy to be distracted. But, I mean, really, really uh, fascinating um, approaches to agriculture and raising interesting questions. Yeah. Lots of good, lots of good material. Yeah, lots of good material. Um, also, there's some great images in the book. They're really wonderful. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, go on. No, no. no. Oh, I was going to say, I think most of them, I have most of the images uh, myself. I think I supplied them uh, to, uh, to, to the press because uh, I've, been, I've been collecting, um, uh, Im, uh, you know, uh, uh, print, uh, printed, printed image material. I think there's a set of stamps in there or something like that, you know, um, and uh, think, things like that. So, yeah, no, it's great. I would have liked to have had it in color, of course, but everyone would like color images in their books. Right. Yeah, everyone except uh, managing budgeting editors, apparently, like managing editors and budget departments. Right. They are impossible to deal with. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you open this book with the assertion that France is perceived to be even celebrated and revered as the producer of the best wines in the world. and you know, on some level, to, there there are amongst a certain crowd to suggest anything else is almost heretical. Oh, yeah. yeah, and this has been the case for almost 200 years. Why is this? What is it about French wine? Why do we love it so much? It's a very interesting. It's, it's, it's a great question, which I honestly had difficulty answering. Uh, I mean, when I grew up, I got interested in wine when I was a teenager. 
And uh, it was very clear. I was actually buying volumes from this uh, uh, classic wine library that I that I now written for. I was buying them in 1963. Some of my earliest books are in that in that series, and and they're mostly you know it's like Bordeaux. It's all about Bordeaux. Sometimes Burgundy, and Champagne gets a look in, and then occasionally you get a bit of German, a bit of German Riesling called Rhine Riesling or Hock, something like that. Uh, no one ever mentions Italy. Spain gets a mention for Sherry. Portugal gets a mention for Port. Uh, but it's all it's all France, right? And it's and it's a couple of regions, and and people are fixated on that. But they still are. I mean, if you look at Wine Spectator and and all these things, you know, you get your annual annual vintage report on Bordeaux, right? And everyone just goes crazy. You know, what's it going to sell for? What, what which are the best which are the best producers this year, and so on. I mean, it's 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 a weird kind of fixation, but there it is. It's, it's historically quite deep. And uh, I mean, there's no question when I started getting interested in wine, that French, French wine was the best wine. No, hands down, not even a question. And then I think, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, from the 1990s, you get California, some Australia, South Africa, a uh, bit of New Zealand, uh, from South Africa, South, uh, South America, maybe. And gradually, gradually, and, and Italy began to pull things together in Spain as well. And then all of a sudden, you know, France was the best still the best, but now there were other stuff coming up, coming up, you know, behind it. And, uh, and now, I mean, I, I love French wine. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real francophile when it comes to wine, but there's fabulous wine from so many places now. Right? I just, I just would never say French wine is the best wine because it's, because it's so much not good, not good French wine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, especially um, if you're on the shelves in America, right? Like they, yeah. they, North America gets some really depressing French wine. But if you're, and you can be in any random grocery store in the smallest town in the middle of nowhere in France, and there's exceptional wine all around you, and it costs yeah. nothing. It's well, and, and there's so much of it, uh, you know, that you, I mean, I, I go to France about four times a year. I've been, I've been in Burgundy pretty consistently for the last uh, two or three years, but. You know, you go, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so, so much stuff you've never seen before, right? And, and I love doing that. I, I find a bottle. I, I have no idea what it is, what the produ- who the producer is. That, for me, is uh, that's pleasure, just to open it up. And not always pleasure when you, when you, when you drink it. But, I mean, you know, yeah, you, you, you never know what you're going to find. It's just an adventure the whole, uh, the, the whole time. But uh, now what I wanted to do in the book was, because I'm also uh, very skeptical about I mean, as a historian, you know, you're skeptical about traditions and mm-hmm. reputations and that kind of thing, since we know that so many of these traditions, not really traditions, and so many reputations are undeserved. And I wanted to sort of um, oh, correct the record a bit when it came to French wine and just to be a little hard-headed about, about you know, how, thing, how things were done. Because you have, you know, now... If you, you know, you buy a French bo- a bottle of wine from France, I mean, not always, but occasionally you see something on the back label that says we make, we make this in the traditional way. Well, first of all, that doesn't mean anything because what's tradition? Uh, but secondly, traditional, I mean, when you look at winemaking in the 18th century, nobody would drink that stuff now, right? I mean, you crushed the grapes, put them into a vat and, and just left them. Didn't do anything, left them for months. And then they 
and then they, you know, racked it into uh, or, or, or siphoned it off into barrels and left it there for a bit and then, and then sold it. The stuff was probably disgusting. Sure. So making wine in the, in the so-called traditional way, I think, don't say that. <laughs> I'm not buying it then. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, I, you know, the whole idea that, you know, this family's been making wine for 10 generations or our vines were first planted in 1346 doesn't mean anything. You go to South Africa and they tell you they've got the oldest soils in the world. Anything? And? That's <laughs> great. So your soils are five billion years older than somebody else's. Is maybe better wine now? <laughs> but you know, so we we have this idea that that old is better, right? Like it's yeah. venerable. That yeah, 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 we do. And uh, so I just want to sort of sort of uh, puncture some of those uh, some of those balloons. And uh, I mean, I'm very skeptical about the notion of terroir, um, which I've, I've written about elsewhere, and. Um, so I wanted to sort of talk about the way terroir developed and why. I mean, it's purely marketing, and uh, you know the, you know the reputation of Bordeaux wines through the the classified cru, the the cru system, how that was developed. I mean, it, it's not this is not new information, but I think it seemed to be new to a lot of people. Uh, you know, who, I mean, the wines weren't judged on quality; they were simply judged on you know, what well, you know on price. You know, so the most expensive wine was the best wine. Um, so I just, yeah, I wanted to sort of uh, be, uh, be um, you know, hard-headed about this and not be romantic because there's so many, so many wine books are just about the romance of wine and how amazing wine is and how amazing the countryside is and how amazing the vignerons are and that kind of thing. And you think, well, no, probably not. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, as a rule, right, this stuff everyone knows, it's it's something like, I think there's something about an historian who wants desperately to just get in there and say like, well, actually, you don't know. <laughs> so there's that. There's also that thing about the French, right? It's also like French food. We have, they've somehow managed to convince us that French food and French technique is the queen of all the techniques. And yeah. that's all we should do. That said, I really love French food. They're not, it's, it is delicious. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, but, you know, but, I mean, well, it's, it's, re, it's regional and, and, you know, so, which is great. I mean, one of the, one of the, it's not, but it's not just true of France, it's true of lots of places, but regionality, right? I mean, the regionality of the wines, the regionality of the food and, and, and everything else is really uh, very attractive. You don't have to drive very far. I mean, you only have to drive 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers, and you're, and you're somewhere, you're somewhere where they, the cheese is totally different. And the wine is different, and uh, and that kind of thing. I spent uh, I spent ten days in in Bouget, which hardly any I don't think it's even in the book. But I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a region I personally discovered a couple of years ago, and it's just east of um, uh, east of Burgundy, east of east of Beaujolais, and north of uh, sort of northwest of Lyon, and uh, it's a little wine region. It's, tiny wine region they've got 70 producers or something like that but it's an aoc right it's an appellation and uh so i spent 10 days there and i just wrote an article on it it's a fabulous place right but i you know i discovered so many well they have different different wine grape varieties i'd never tasted before then they've got sausages i'd never tasted before and some cheeses that, that were new and it was um i've got to say um 
I, I felt the sense that I think a lot of wine writers feel when they write about the romance of the wine and the romance of the region, because I got there and no one really knows about it. I mean, it's hardly ever written about. It's just a forgotten appellation. And they were so happy to see somebody. <laughs> right. They were so yeah. happy to see a wine writer, right? I contacted the Association of Vignerons and said, I want to come and write an article. I'm, I'm, I'm in Canada. I want to come and write an article. Could you set up a, an itinerary for me between these dates? And I didn't, I didn't know if anyone was going to take, take me up on this. And two days later, they said, well, here's, here's the beginnings of your itinerary. And it was packed, <laughs> packed. And then they were saying, could you do another one like at 8 p.m.? You know, because <laughs> someone, uh, and I, it was, it was, I, I was up at seven in the morning. I didn't get back till, to my place until about 10 at night. And it was taste, taste, taste. And these were the nicest people in the world. I mean, the first, the first place I'd get to at 7.30, they would have coffee and croissant and everything ready for me. And then somebody would take me to lunch or make lunch in their kitchen. And then I have dinner and taste, 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 giving me wine. I mean, I, they'd say, can, can I give you some wine? I say, no, it's fine. No, 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 no. You have to have at least one bottle, two bottles. I, ha- I end up with 74 bottles of wine. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what did you even do? Yeah, the, the logistics of that baffled me. Car, uh, full of, I mean, I have a friend who lives not far from there, so I just left it. I left it with her. I said, uh, I said, you can drink these ones, but keep these ones till I get back. I haven't got back yet after the uh, after Oh, the yeah, pandemic. of course. Yeah. But uh, the nicest people, and I just began, I was just, I was seduced by this, by this place, you know? It was mm-hmm. quite unlike any place I'd been to. These were just, and I hate the word authentic, but these were just like such nice people, down-to-earth, hardworking, decent, friendly, do-anything-for-you kinds of people. Fabulous. Wonder, I just tiny, wrote that down. <laughs> in these tiny villages, tiny villages of like 30 people. Wow. One, one winemaker, you know, one 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 producer. So I I feel like maybe uh, you still do have a little uh, a little romance for a little French romance there going on. I was surprised, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, and I, I wrote and I wrote the article for uh, for a, a wine magazine, and I, I I went through a couple of drafts because I had sliding off into this kind of oh this you know this is. These are the most best people in the world, and the best wines in the world. I, I kept drifting off and thinking, "Oh, yeah, I gotta gotta be keep, keep my feet on the ground." <laughs> <laughs> That's delightful. I'm gonna look for that piece. So, um, I want to I want to talk about the history of this a bit. Um, yeah. Let's take us back in time. So, as an historian, I really like to think about and stress the unifying characteristics that make up the Mediterranean culture. Right, the things around the pe- that the people in the sea, both north and south sides really have in common. And I was thinking when I was reading this, how much wine is a product of the Mediterranean world, right? And it really connects France with that tradition. Right. Yes, it is, isn't it? I mean, the, I mean, the first vines were planted by Greeks and then, uh, and then by Romans and it, and it started on the, on the Mediterranean coast or just in, um, the town of Lat, uh, was, was key and, and so on, and then and then moved in following the rivers, obviously, which are you know the the easy, easiest way to travel, well, not always the easiest way, but I mean the 
certainly the best way to, to, to move wine. So, yeah, following the, um, uh, the rivers, so along the, uh, along the Garonne and uh, Gironde up to, up to Bordeaux and then up the Rhone uh, from, the, from the Mediterranean, uh, up, up the River Rhone and so on. So, yeah, very much, very much Mediterranean to start with, but it, it really wasn't long before they were planting in, in northern, um, uh, northern France. And in places that don't, you know, you're not going to, well, I mean, you might, with gl- global warming, I mean, climate change, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the northern frontier of, of viticulture is moving, uh, moving steadily northwards. Uh, but I mean, I got, you know, sources, 18th century sources that have, you know, wine being made in Normandy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I lived in Normandy for a year and I can tell you there's no wine, no wine being made there at that time anyway maybe now uh good cider but 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 not wine well i mean how much of that move north has to do with christianity what's the role of christianity there um it it, it, i think it's a bit it's i'm a bit ambivalent about it it's um i mean the initial pushes with the romans uh you know who who not only you know created a military empire but an economic empire as well so that you know they they would move in the their merchants would uh, would would get land, plant vines, and so on. So, I mean, they, what they wanted to do was recreate Italy mm-hmm. in, in terms of food and drink, right? So they needed they needed wine, so they, so they planted wine. But then Christianity is obviously a very big uh, is a very big influence as well, because the Christians embraced wine. I mean, it's you know, wine is the most uh, commonly mentioned beverage and the grapevine is the most commonly mentioned uh, uh, plant in the Bible. And, um, and then wine just became central to the rituals through, uh, through the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, and, and then, you know, in the, in the early middle ages, there were, there were regulations set down by a number of church councils saying that, you know, every, um, uh, every archbishop, uh, you know, every cathedral must have uh, must have a vineyard, must produce their own their own vines because they need the sacramental wine, and uh, and so the easiest thing is to grow it yourself and uh, make it yourself and so on. And then, of course, the uh, you know the the religious houses, the monks and the and nuns began to produce wine as well as as well as beer. So Christianity is important. What I'm not sure of, and you know, when 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 you get to the Middle Ages and people talk about the importance of um, of monasteries for for wine, and you'll find it said that you know the church was the biggest producer of wine, and and that kind. Of, I don't know if that's true, and uh, you know I think I think partly monastic records are better kept than private records. I mean they have a, they have a continuity over time, and they were also record keepers, uh, whereas individuals who planted vineyards and you know, might have had them in the family for a couple of generations, and then they died out. We have no records of those, so I think there's a, a church records are privileged and yeah. and and are better conserved. Uh, and where where you do get um, some some records, as in, as you do in England, there aren't that many aren't that many vineyards, but monastic. Uh, and this is before the Reformation. Monastic vineyards were, I think, only about 30 percent of all of all the vineyards. Now we don't know how big they were. It's quite possible that they were bigger, and therefore, it's not. They didn't make just twenty-five percent of the wine. They might have made fifty percent of the wine. I don't know. 
Uh, but I think I think you just have to be a bit careful about the importance of the church, recognizing that it's important, but without without suggesting that it had this kind of dominance that that it appeared to have. And you can also see, even by the early Middle Ages, that there's this very clear management of vineyard and wine production in the secular world as well. And that was one of the things I was really impressed by. That this is people are this is a we have viticulture very early, right. And that's another thing. I mean, the you know the monks were very careful because they were they were harvesting God's bounty and they were looking after God's you know God's wealth. And so they you know they wrote everything down. You know this you know we're doing this with the vines and we're you know we're we're using mulch here and we're you know we're pruning them in this way. And everyone says, well, you know the the monks invented all the stuff, or you know they were they were the pioneers in doing this. But we don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the monks are looking over the fence, right. you know, at a, at, a, at a secular vineyard and saying, oh, that looks that looks like a good way of doing it. And they wrote it down. I mean, so we don't know. Right? I, mean, I mean, the record is <clears throat> I just I just say it's an open question. I don't want to diminish the role of the church by any means. But I but I think you've got to be realistic about yeah. about uh, about, you know, the sources that, that you're using and, and how they may they may bias the uh, the information that you have. Yeah, very important. Okay, so Romans take over Europe and around the Mediterranean and try to turn it into Italy, um, which, you know, they do. And then Europeans go and take over the, uh, colonize all over the globe and do their best to turn that into Europe in a lot of ways, right? They take their, they take their pigs, they take their horses, and they take their vineyards. Right. So we see like the new world then becomes this spot for wine production. And in some ways, you know, there are people who would tell you that's where all the best wines are now. Yes, there are people who would say that. And uh, you, you certainly can't, I mean, you can't turn around without seeing a Chilean wine or a South African wine these days, right? Right. No, well, it's very interesting, really, because, I mean, you know, the, the big... Uh, you know the big wine imperialists are the, are the Spanish, <clears throat> because I mean they're the ones who you know they they colonized the the the, the Americas first, and they and they, I mean they they try to plant vines in in Mexico, but the climate is is not good, uh, and so, but they all down the west coast of of uh, of South America from uh, you know uh, from Peru uh, Ecuador. All the way down the uh, the coast of, of Chile, and then over in in over the Andes in Argentina. I mean, they they have a they have a big wine industry within oh, seriously. It's within a couple of decades of, of actually of actually colonizing uh, Mexico. It's it's incredibly fast. I mean, they're racing down with the with the army. They've got the they've got the soldiers. They've got they've got uh, missionaries uh, who are, who are familiar with growing growing vines. They pick out they pick out the best locations for vines, which are still some of the best locations for vines, and they plant them in the 1550s, 1560s. It's astonishing. Uh, so, so you know, that's what they want to do. They want to keep a supply of wine. I mean, and people say, well, of course, it's for the church, you know, it's for it's for Eucharist, but you don't need that much for Eucharist. No. <laughs> most, of it, most of it's pretty secular uh, wine, and they have so much that they then have a brandy industry because they they can't can't consume all the wine they're making, so they so they distill it into brandy. So then they have a big brandy industry and a pisco industry and so on. Uh, so the Spanish are like that. Now, the funny thing is the, the, the English are kind of iffy about 
about wine. I mean, you know, they they they, they try to they try to grow uh, grow uh, grapes in Virginia and a few other places, but then they discover that tobacco did better. So scrap scrap the wine. Let's uh, we'll grow tobacco, and it. You know, the colonists didn't really do well with wine at all until kind of the early, really the 19th century, late, late 18th, early 19th century, the English colonists. Um, and then South Africa, the Dutch, but that's, they wanted, they wanted to be able to kind of refuel their ships sailing from, uh, from the Netherlands to the East Indies via the Cape. And it was, the Cape was sort of halfway, and they wanted to be able to take on fresh supplies of wine because it had health health properties. And uh, so that's why they started there. And Australia and New Zealand very, were, you know, very late in the early 19th century and, and, and the mid-19th century. The funny, the big country missing it here is France. And this is what really struck me after doing, you know, writing the stuff on, on Cologne. And I was like, why are the, Fran- why are the French planting grapes anywhere in their colonies. I mean, you could say, well, the colonies aren't suitable like Quebec or Louisiana or, uh, you know, the, the, um, the Caribbean uh, colonies. You could say they're not suitable, but everyone else was trying to grow grapes where in places that weren't suitable. I mean, they tried, 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 then gave up. The French didn't even try. And I think this is really, I think it's really fascinating and something I'd like to do a bit more on because I, I just wonder if there's any discussion in the French government at this time, so, you know, people saying, well, we should, you know, we should plant vines and other people saying, no, no, we shouldn't for, for these reasons. But there's just, no, they're not interested. And that, that's irony. <laughs> it, it is, isn't it? Eh? Yeah. And, you, and you think, well, maybe the French wine lobby was so strong, they just didn't want the competition. I mean, the Spanish wine lobby tried to, tried to halt the planting of vines in the new world because I mean, they, when they, when they saw the new world opening up, they thought, wow, you know, I've got a huge new market now for our wines. And well, no. And I wonder if the French wine lobby, but it's not, it's hard to think of a wine lobby at that time, you know, but, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, vignerons the, travel like French vignerons go into the new world, right? Right. Yeah. The vignerons travel and mean the, um, the English use French, uh, French vignerons to write the, to write the manuals. I mean, how to, how to how to grow grapes in Virginia? They get some guy who who grown grapes in Languedoc, who had never been to Virginia, had no idea what local conditions were like, but was saying, "Oh, no, it's easy. This is, this is how you do it." So vignerons had the uh, uh, and the same in South Africa, but the uh, so yeah, the vignerons travel, but 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 the French as a you know had no colonial policy or imperial policy along those lines. That is very it, it, interesting. It is interesting, yeah. yeah. And you can only think, well, they just didn't want the competition for the domestic, right. domestic one. That's all. That's all I could think of. Sure. Yeah. I, I want you to do more work on that. I want to read about. Yeah. That. Okay. <laughs> think about that for me. Um, another thing, I'm reading about this, and I, you know, I'm here for the wine. I'm a wine lover. Um, you can, you know, um, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and but there's this point, you know, wine is just a beverage. Wine is food. Wine is something that you uh, drink, you know, you drink to keep your, yourself alive in the winter, maybe even. But at some point, it's also this luxury and a pleasure. Um, and it becomes um, a sign of, of, of distinction, you know, to have a good wine collection. How does this happen? When, is there a point when this happens? Well, I, I, I think it does become a, it becomes a, 
you know, a, a, a product of, of, um, of uh, you know, of, cons- of, cons- of conspicuous consumption, you know, in the way that, you know, you might have a, you know, a swan, you know, a roasted swan on your table, you would want, you know, wine from a particular region. And, you know, you know, there are, and I mentioned them in the book, you know, there are records of sellers of, of uh, you know, of nobles and their sellers and the buyers, the kings, uh, wine buyers going into various regions to, you know, to buy wine and everything. And they clearly, you know, they're looking for, they're looking for particular kinds of wine. I mean, from particular places. I, I, I've got a book coming out on Volnay, uh, you know, the village in, in Burgundy uh, coming out next year. And um, uh, I mean, you know, they mentioned that, you know, the king's buyers and the queen's buyers coming in and, you know, one will buy 600 barrels and one will buy 200 barrels. But, you know, they know what they, they know what they're looking for. So, you know, it's all about reputation and um, and and prestige and uh, and that and that kind of thing. Um, now, you know, quite, quite, you know, quite how it functions. I, I don't know. And, I, I, and it's, it's not easy to know how, you know, a, how, how deep that kind of that kind of thing is. I mean, you know, what what kinds of people have sellers? Obviously, you have to have disposable money and uh, and, and so on. And these are real sellers, right? I mean, you got to have a real seller. Uh, but but I don't know. I'm I'm just starting a book on on wine in the French Revolution, and uh, I, I've done I've done a bit of preliminary research. And and during the revolution, the government ordered the confiscation. Of the wine cellars, the fine wines of counter-revolutionaries, um, and they said they'd be the wines would be put to the use of the nation. And I'm not it was never quite clear what that meant, whether they were going to sort of sell them, you know, sort of uh, and sell them for, and, and then you know get the cash, or or what. But but they were. They I mean they they confiscated these cellars, and you have you know. Lists of uh, lists of barrels and bottles and so on that they've that they've confiscated, but it's not clear where it went. Uh, so that's something for me to something for me to look at. Mm-hmm. I know there was a case in Bone in Burgundy of uh, somebody complained that the local one of the local officials was actually drinking the stuff. I mean, <laughs> confiscating it and then taking it home. Um, but so I I don't know what happened to that. But you can sort of get a sense of of who has a cellar. At least, because some of these some of these counter revolutionaries are not nobles. They're uh, well, some of them are priests, mm-hmm. uh, some of them are bourgeois, and so on. So I, I, I'm going to sort of follow that follow that trail and try to figure out uh, what kinds of people. I mean, I mean, they've got to be counter revolutionaries, but um, you know, what kinds of people, what kinds of occupations, and so on might have a what kind of, might have a wine cellar. Yeah, that's a interesting, and that's a point where you can tell a lot about someone by that, right? Um, yeah, I mean, but also wine like manages to escape the bad rap that some other alcohol gets. You know, there's a day class A kind of thing towards beer and being a beer drinker. Gin is credited with basically destroying the English working class. Right. Um, rum leads to piracy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But wine doesn't seem to have any really terrible effects either. Wine is this kind of cherished drink. Well, I think I think it is because, uh, first of all, it, it has this religious connotation. Mm-hmm. I mean, how bad can it be if Jesus turned water, in, water into wine, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, that's a real problem. Yes. It's a real problem for the in the nineteenth century for the 
you know, for the for the prohibitionists, so the the Christian prohibitionists. I mean, they so they have to do a workaround there. Um, uh, it, so it has a religious thing. It has a health. It has a health connotation. I mean, it, you know, wine is seen to be a healthy beverage. Nothing specific, but just you know, drinking wine keeps you healthy, good for digestion, uh, and so on. I mean, some of the medical books actually specify, like in the medieval, early modern period, will specify that you know, for this kind of you know, this kind of problem, you should drink this kind of wine, you know, sort of a light white wine or a heavier dark wine. But mostly it's considered to be healthy. And uh, uh, I mean, right through the right through the 19th century, right through, into the 20th century, you know, the physicians are still talking about the health, health benefits of wine. And it's, it, I mean, it, it doesn't disappear until oh, 20s, 30s, I mean, after prohibition. <laughs> and then it came back with the, uh, you know, the French, uh, the French paradox mm-hmm. in the 1990s that, that, you know, this idea that, you know, wine was the, wine was what kept the French from having high rates of, uh, of coronary disease. Um, so I think I think that plays into it. But also the fact that it's a it's a kind of middle class. It's a middle class drink. You know, I mean, wealthy people drink wine, poor people don't. And so, you know, if you're looking for harmful things, it's what poor people do. Mm-hmm. And not what wealthy people do, you know, and the, and the whole idea that, you know, poor people go into pubs and, you know, cabaret and, and so on. And they just just drink themselves stupid, whereas middle class people and wealthy people sit at the table with their wine and drink themselves stupid. <laughs> sure. But, but privately. Yeah, fewer <laughs> people see that. So it's a different thing. Right yeah, yeah for know, sure. Wine. Yeah. Fall off the floor onto the table. It's, it's fine. They have a but, servant to yeah, drag them to bed. Get rowdy in the street or something else, right? So all of yeah. that. So, so I think wine can, you know, wine sort of sustains propriety, and these other these other uh, alcohols, uh, you know, sustain unruly behavior and asocial behavior. So I think all of these things sort of play into it, which gives wine a really privileged status. Yeah, it gets coded as a like a bourgeois and upper class beverage. Correct. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So, um, so. The the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries are bad for France in a lot of ways, right? Like, and you know, the, the having a hosting a couple major world wars, having the the ground you know basically exploded all around is one thing, but that's that's not the only reason that this is a really bad time for French wine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the big problem is phylloxera, right? And Phylloxera is an, it's, a, it's a tiny aphid, tiny yellow aphid. Um, it's native to North America, and it uh, it 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 lives on uh, vines, grapevines particularly. And uh, so, you know, native grapevines in 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 North America just had these aphids, and they just tolerated them. They they could they could live with them. But uh, in the 1860s, some of these uh, North American vines were shipped because this is before the ideas of quarantining and you know, the transfer of diseases of, of various kinds. Uh, some of these vines were shipped into Europe, mainly into France and, and England, because they wanted to plant American vines to see how they would do, because American vines had a reputation, or American grapes had a reputation of making bad wine. And they wanted to see what it was about mm-hmm. these grapes that, you know, didn't, didn't really make good wine. Anyway, the aphids came with them. And, uh, and then, you know, were planted in French vineyards and then so moved on to the French vines. And the French vines weren't, you know, had no experience of them, were intolerant. And, and so the, the aphids began to kill the vines. 
So you can see it starting in the, around the Mediterranean region uh, first in the 1860s, and then by the 1880s, all over France. So they, they lost probably about two, uh, about three quarters of the vines what died. And uh, so there's a crisis, of course, because there was a shortage of wine. People started making wine from raisins and, you know, and all, all kinds of things. And uh, so there's a problem not only of a shortage of wine, but also um, uh, fraudulent wine. Uh, you know, widespread wine fraud, and everyone was everyone was involved in it. Uh, and the, you know, the, the the Bordeaux people, you know, of, of these great chateaus, of course, were were buying whatever they, you know, mixing anything they could because they needed to keep up the things, and that so they lost they lost reputation because people were buying the stuff, and it was it didn't taste didn't taste right. So it was a real crisis. Uh, now they, they they figured out how to how to deal with uh, with phylloxera. Um, by the 1880s, and so you know, by the early 1900s, the vines were were back. Um, but the, the whole question of wine fraud and the reputation of French wine <coughs> were just ongoing, ongoing issues. And that's when you get the appellation system, um, you know, of, yeah. of of controlling controlling grapes and and production methods and that kind of thing. That's a response to wine fraud. It's a, it's a, it's, it's designed to say. If you have a wine that satisfies the Appalachian rules, it's genuine wine, not. So that genuine. happens in, in that happens in 1935, and it's a pretty serious turning point. And I feel like this creates the world, the wine world I know, right? The AOCs. Can you yeah. explain those? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it started earlier. I mean, they began in the in the first decade of the uh, of the 1900s, uh, and then they again just after the First World War, but. Uh, trying to put in place an appellation system, and so they were working towards it. And uh, and and then you know in the mid thirties, as you say, they be they began, and, and you know started with with a few like uh, Chateauneuf du Pape and, and a few others, and then I mean they're still creating appellations. I mean they're still <coughs> right from the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, and so on, still creating more appellations. And some of the you know some of the well known ones are quite recent. Um. But, uh, you know, this gives you some kind of certainty. And it was a, a system that, that was then adopted by the Italians and the Spanish and the, uh, the Portuguese. So right through Europe, the wine producing countries adopted versions of the French, uh, of the French system. Um, and then in the New World, I mean, the, they, the New World systems weren't as, weren't as limiting. I mean, in France, you can... Uh, if you want to make an Appalachian wine, it has to be made from these grapes or this grape. <clears throat> and, um, you know, in the new world, you can use any grapes, any grape varieties you like. So it's a much more, it's a much more permissive system, but, uh, no, it's, uh, it really is the, uh, set, set the tone, I think, or set the, set the conditions for, uh, more control over wine and, and for, for better quality wine. Um, and so overall, you know, wines, it's hard to say. I mean, we don't know what these early wines tasted like, really. Uh, and, and, and also tastes change, right? I mean, you know, what we would, discuss, what we would think was disgusting, they might have thought was delicious. But, um, um, you know, I, I think from the, from the 30s, but then particularly from after the, after the Second World War, you really start to get, uh, start to get improvements in, in things. And then there's a big boost in the 1980s and 1990s when, I mean, Italian wine started to started to improve. I mean, I remember growing up with 
terrible Chianti in the in those uh, yeah Fiaschi jugs. And, <laughs> those giant jugs yeah Ugh. yeah you know and and so on I mean now Italian wine is uh, so much Italian wine is fabulous but it wasn't and 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 the same with French wine to be honest and and Chilean wine uh, not Chilean wine uh, uh, Spanish wine I mean I grew up in New Zealand New Zealand makes very good wine now but I grew up and. I mean, when I grew up and started visiting wineries in the '60s, it was it was truly disgusting. I knew at the time, <laughs> I knew at the time it was disgusting, <laughs> and and so on. So you know, things have things have changed, but the appellation systems, these controls on production and and viticulture, have been have been really really important. Well, but I mean, and you assert that the past fifty years have been a golden age of wine. Um, which yeah. of course nobody wants the golden age to be what we're in, but it is. And why? Why? Why do you say that? Why do you think that? Well, I just I just think because um, wine is is a purer product. I mean, you know, I mean, people who talk about natural wine, it's a term I don't like. But, but you know, talk about natural wine, will say no. But there are all these additives. You can add acid. You can add tannins. You can add this. You can add that. Yes, you can. But it, <coughs> it's a pure. <laughs> it's a fairly pure wine uh, product. I think quality is good. And, and, and also, I mean, depending where you live, um, you, can, you can get wine from anywhere in the world. And, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I go down, I live on the, on the border of uh, Ontario and Quebec. So we have, we have two, two, two alcohol systems and uh, I can cross the border and, and buy wine. And then I can come back onto my side and buy wine. And I have probably one of the best selections of wine in the world here. Um, and, and if you live in New York and you, I mean, live in American cities, the same and, and in London and in, in the Netherlands, yeah. right? Amsterdam. Yeah. I and can have wine Amsterdam. delivered to my house from around the world overnight. But go to, but go to France and you can't, I mean, you can buy <laughs> French wine, yeah. uh, go, to, go to Chile and you can't there's Chilean wine, right? I mean, it's, I was, uh, I was at a conference in Bordeaux. Uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, they suggested everyone should bring a bottle of wine for, to a reception. <clears throat> and I was giving a paper on Burgundy. So I thought, well, and I was coming from Canada. So I thought, well, I'll just buy a bottle of Burgundy while I'm, while I'm there. So have you tried to buy a bottle of Burgundy in Bordeaux? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I have I, not. I went into store after store and said, do you, have any, do, you have a, do you have any Burgundy? And they said, no. Maman. Question, do you know where you are? <clears throat> I finally found a little store and I said, Do you have any? And the guy said no. And his and the woman, the wife, I think, said, uh, no, no, we have no, we have one bottle. Remember? She came out. Very nice bottle. So I took that. But I mean, that's that's what it's like. I mean, uh, God forbid you should be able to buy a bottle of Chilean wine or Californian wine in Bordeaux. So uh, so I think I mean it's not it's not true everywhere. But, uh, but, you know, many parts of the world where, where we have open wine markets, we have like fabulous selection of wines. I can, I can go to my local store and I can get wines from all over the world. Oh, it's wonderful. And uh, delicious wines. And I, I, I mean, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are drinking wine and there's a lot of talk about wine. There's, there's a great market. It's a really good time for it. Um, you know, as I finished this book and I cast around kind of in my mind for overarching statements I could make about the relationship between France and wine. And I have to say, I'm kind of at a loss short of uh, just, you know, your conclusion really, you know, when you say that the history of wine and the history of France are inextricable. And that's really all I can, 
you know, there's no, there's no, there, there are no overarching trends. It's just that France and wine are just linked. And that, that's what I've got. So I would like to hear your comments. What am I missing? No, I think, I think it's true. I mean, it hasn't always been true. Uh, but I mean, you know, there's, there's a point probably from, you know, probably from the Middle Ages, I think, you know, when they started the big Bordeaux trade with England and, and Northern Europe. Uh, that's when, you know, people began to think, well, you know, and they didn't even think of French wine. They thought of wine from Aquitaine or from, or from, or from Bordeaux. Uh, and, and from that point, and then Burgundy came on stream and then Champagne and so on. And then everyone began to think of, everyone began to, or wine drinkers began to think of France when they thought of wine. And then the French began to think of themselves as, um, as uh, you know, represented by wine. Uh, and, and it's very important during the French Revolution, which I'm studying now. I mean, they think of wine as, um, you know, drinking wine together is, is, like a, is like a revolutionary Eucharist, right? Um, and, and then, you know, 100 years after, they declare, the parliament actually declares wine to be the national beverage of, of France. But, but it's been a very, you know, it's kind of, kind of complicated relationship, which is what you'd expect. You know, I mean, some regions do well. Other regions are, have grievances because they're not doing well. Um, it's a long time before the South gets recognized as producing anything other than just, you know, just cheap bulk yeah. wine. Um, and, uh, I mean, the First World War is also important because, you know, wine, wine becomes the, you know, the, the fluid that the army runs on. Uh, you know, they get you get to, you know, a, a liter or two liters, a liter of uh, a liter of wine a day as a ration. I mean, that's pretty serious, uh, pretty serious stuff. Um, so it's a complicated it's a complicated relationship. And it's not always it hasn't always been happy, I think. Um, you know, the, I mean, phylloxera was a terrible, terrible time. Right. And there have been, you know, wars and uh trade uh, trade disputes and and that kind of thing but but uh, you know I, I think it's you know i think I, you know in the end i mean the french do identify with gastronomy and style you know and and wine is wine is part of this you know there's a kind of um, you know a luxury uh a veneer of luxury to the whole thing even though the bulk of the wine that they that they export is ordinary day, everyday drinking wine that's not very not very expensive you know, you still think of the of the sort of the high end uh, from uh, probably half a dozen regions. So it's uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean, it sounds like a, <laughs> a bit anticlimactic, but uh, you know, to say that you know there is this identification of France and wine, but but there it is. It, no, and, they it, do. Yeah. They go together. That's France is a, a Frenchman is smoking in a beret and they're drinking a glass of wine with their baguette. That is just exactly that. Yeah, that's how we have it. Yeah. All right. So in the world of the author, this book is quite a bit behind you, right? Because it goes, listeners, you you have probably heard me talk about this before, but you know, a book, you, you send this book in a year before you see it on the shelf. So this has been between covers for a while and you've mentioned several more projects. So what are you working on right now? What's the next thing we can read from you? Well, <laughs> uh, it's a history of cats. What? <laughs> it's, a, it's a cultural history of cats. Uh, uh, okay, all right. How did that happen? Oh goodness! 
listeners, he's reaching down, and I believe I am about to meet a cat. Yeah, oh my goodness, I am meeting the chubbiest, beautiful little cat. Beautiful, enormous cat. Well, I got, I got two of them. They're siblings. And I, I, I love cats. I always have loved cats. And um, sorry. <laughs> uh, and I've always thought, well, I'll write a history of cats when I retire. But this pandemic has been so disruptive to my work. I, have, I haven't been able to travel, right? And I have these books that uh, I need to travel to finish. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll get going. I've been collecting stuff on cats. So, I got, so it's, um, it's nearly finished. Um, I hope I'll finish it by the end of the summer. So it's cultural history cats from domestication from the wild cats in the Middle East uh, through to the present day. So that's All right. That's the next one, but it's completely off. Yeah. Off the thing. Uh, what I've got I, I, with a with a colleague in Burgundy, I um, <clears throat> well, I, I I found the the records of a of a priest in the 18th century who was a priest for 50 years. And who kept detailed records on the vines belonging to the parish, mm. uh, like weather records for the whole year, um, uh, the production, what the grapes looked like, how much, how many baskets of each they they picked, how much wine they made, and what they sold it for, and so on. So it's a fifty-year record. So we, we've done a transcription of the of the of the register, and then a long introduction together. And that'll be published by um, Dijon, Dijon University Press mm-hmm. uh, next year. They, they've got it right now. And then I'm working on, I'm just really starting the wine in the French Revolution. And uh, so that's a, I've got a sort of a four-year research grant for that one. And then um, the wines of Southwest France, which is under contract for the classic wine library. So those are the... Those are what I'm doing. So I'm going to finish the cat book um, by the end of August, and then I start teaching again in September. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'll start traveling again. I hope it's then possible. Yes, it will and be. I'll be I'll, yeah, I'll be able to get back to France and then work on this uh, work on this other stuff. So the cat book has been actually good. It's kept me busy, and um, but it'll it, you know it's finite. It'll be it'll be finished and sort of out of the way, and then I'll have to find a new retirement project. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, you know, I'm guessing you won't have much trouble with that, just based on based on your your That's Catholic helpful. interests. I think it'll be all right. Oh, uh, it's thanks so much. This has been a great time. Good. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's been a great way to spend the late morning on a on a on a nice day here. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Take Good. care. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, John. Bye. Bye.